Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Sophie Ellis-Bexter and welcome to Spinning Plates, the podcast where I speak to busy working women who also happen to be mothers about how they make it work. I'm a singer and I've released seven albums in between having my five sons aged 16 months to 16 years, so I spin a few plates myself. Being a mother can be the most amazing thing, but can also be hard to find time for yourself and your own ambitions. I want to be a bit nosy and see how other people balance everything. Welcome to Spinning Plates. Hi. It's a little bit noisy here because I'm at Heathrow. You're just going to have to bear with me. I'm recording the intro. Much. That's all right. You can talk to me now. <laughs> with my mum. <laughs> uh, we are just catching our breath because we nearly missed our flight. Uh, we're off to Aberdeen for a Burns Night event this weekend. We're staying in a fancy hotel. But um, we booked um, flights 11 o'clock. Um, we got a tube here and it was a mistake. <laughs> it shouldn't be. No, we, we had a very long wait at one station and it to run through and push past people. And now, of course, the plane isn't actually boarding yet, even though it should have technically been flying in about 10 minutes. So now if anyone sees us that we push past, they're going to think we were just making up. But really, if you let me and my mum go in front of you, thank you. Thank you. It was very, thank you very much. Yeah, it was very stressful. Um, so, sorry about the noise, but... This is this is where we're at. Um, how are you? <laughs> uh, so this week is a lovely guest. Oh, I really liked her, Sarah Davis, uh, Dragon's Den entrepreneur and the founder of Craft's Companion, wildly successful craft business here in the states, employing I think she said 300 people. Uh, you know annual turnover in the tens of millions, very successful woman, self-made, mother of two little boys, and a really, really lovely woman who, she came around to mind, was completely smiley and lovely to everybody in the whole house, you know, um, met some of the kids, 
very open, very warm, and you can see she's just a real champion of what people can achieve if they set their mind to it. So I think you're going to come out the other side of this feeling enthused and optimistic, which is also how I'm feeling now that we made our flight. <laughs> see you on the other side. Well, it's so lovely to meet you properly, Sarah. I feel like we've got a few degrees of separation in our lives of people we both know, but it's yes. really nice to meet you in person. Thank you. Do you know what? It's lovely to get out. This is the first time I've done an in-person podcast in over three years. Really? So it's lovely to actually sit and chat in front of somebody and see the whites of your eyes, <laughs> even though it's you interviewing me. <laughs> well, it's very nice for me too. I'm glad you've broken the seal on yeah, face-to-face ones again. Um, it's much nicer when it's in person from my point of view. I like it. It's much more personal isn't it yeah and you yeah. get the conversation and someone told me that in when you're doing things remote there's like a it's like a microsecond delay that can mean actually like humans we're so attuned to measure emotion that actually just that little delay is what can cause you know that sort of clunky feeling you get sometimes i know exactly and for me it's looking people in the eyes yes so whenever i do zoom interviews or anything i actually look straight into the camera so that Ooh. the person at the other side feels like i'm looking at them but then i miss yeah seeing them that's all for their benefit. Yeah. You're missing out on the eyes. I am missing out on the eyes. But then you try and look at their eyes. <laughs> maybe and their eyes looking... aren't looking at me because <laughs> they're looking at the computer screen. Nobody's ever done it the other way around. I was going to maybe, well, if they're staring at their camera too, they're just two people staring at cameras. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. I've never met anyone else who stares into the camera like I do. Though, it's so. definitely unusual. I'm normally looking at myself thinking... Is, do I look like I'm looking? Is, have I put my hand there? Where, oh, what's in the back of my shot? Maybe I should move that shelf. I oh, know, focus. <laughs> <laughs> do you know we had a pitch in the den once? Someone had come up with the idea of putting the camera in the middle of your screen. Oh, yeah, that's smart. I thought it was absolutely genius. I don't think the product worked very well, so I didn't invest, but the concept, the concept. was there. Yeah, I'm going to get to work on fine-tuning the product this oh, afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> I'll invest. If it's decent, I'm up for it. Watch this space. Um, and you come fresh from QVC. Yes, so literally I was live on air just a couple of hours ago. And how do you, because you said you've been doing that for 20 years, over the course of 20 years you've been visiting QVC and selling your wares that way. So it's funny because I've always done TV, mm. but not proper TV in inverted commas. That's what my little sister used to say. You don't do proper TV though, do you not? <laughs> and, um, but I think haven't had that grounding, you know, before I did Dragon's Den, for example, I'd done 15 years on shopping TV and I think they're not used to... I remember them interviewing me for Dragon's Den and I'd done loads of investing before. I'd been on a panel of female investors, so I knew all mm. of the investment and I had all of the TV skills. I'm used to, you know, where to look for the cameras. I'm, I'm very aware of all of that, mm. more so than I think you even need to be for Dragon's Den. Shopping TV is a very good grounding for any type of TV. And so I think the producers got quite a shock when, when I got on set and I was quite natural on set. They've had people who were more used to the TV, but not as used to the investing, or they're business people for whom the TV is such a world apart. So it was, um, let's just say it was an easy transition in for me. Yeah, but actually that's really interesting set because I guess what you're doing when you're doing talking about your business so which is primarily crafting you've got that very uh, pure dialogue if you're on the tv and it has that cozy at home feel where people could be that you feel like you're talking to them and yes. that became the medium to actually sort of get people to understand what you're doing and what they could do buy to make their lives easier yeah and that reminds me a little bit of, um, before we started recording, we were both sharing our love of Mary Berry. Oh, yes. And she said that when she was first on TV, she was quite awkward. And then someone said to her, 
you have to imagine the other person, the other end is maybe someone, you know, a woman doing her ironing. This was like the fifties, whatever. <laughs> and um, she could be flicking to any channel. But when you, if you, if she lands on your channel and she feels that you're just talking to her, only her, yep. she will. You'll be engaging with her. And someone, I guess that's kind of it. Someone once said to me, it was an on-air trainer, and she said, it is a privilege that they've invited you into their, their living room. Mm. They could have picked any one of hundreds of people to invite in right now, and they chose you. Yeah. And always see it as a privilege. Mm. And I think I always had that feeling. Mm -hmm. And so when we go, and I've been through years and years of training, and the QVC style of selling is called over the back garden fence. So the idea is that you're supposed to feel like you're chatting to your neighbour mm. over the back fence, telling them how awesome this product is. As a channel, they're not about look down the lens in the whites of your eyes, I'm going to tell you you need to buy this product today. It's more a conversation. And so a lot of people watch QVC or the various shopping channels for companionship. Yes. And that's the difference. You totally know, you've you've got them on in the corner of the room. For, for a bit of friendship you get to know the presenters you get to know the guests you find out a little bit about their lives and they become a bit of an extended friendship circle mm -hmm. that's how you then build the trust and then as long as I know that whenever I go on air, whenever I go on air, I'm only ever selling my products. Mm -hmm. So I can stand on air and say, do you know what? This is brilliant and you are going to love using it. And I know that because I made it. So I made it so that I know you're going to love using it. I'm not just saying that. And I think because I've built a relationship with those people at home and they trust me. Yeah. And when they do get their product home, they do feel that way. And it just extends the friendship. So yeah. I, I feel really, and, and I do always feel privileged that they chose to invite me in and I'm the one they chose to be friends with it's yeah. not a it's not something where you know oh, I get to go on tv really is a privilege yeah no that's a lovely way I, I like that over the back garden fence idea as well that totally makes sense to me and I think you're right about the companionship I mean and no disparaging way to the shopping channel but whenever I've stumbled across them I do always feel like I might possibly be the only person watching but that's probably that's very how they're making you feel <laughs> exactly <laughs> it's working for me but then it's really cozy and by golly you do get kind of hooked up Richard bought um, not one but two matching sets of these very sharp knives from shopping channel very late at night once we're still using them now they did actually work but it was there just so funny you start off thinking oh this is quite funny and then you're like actually that looks really great I need that in my life and, and for you the person the other end who you're picturing has that community or that person that you're talking to kind of changed over the years do you know it changes depending on where I'm presenting Oh, so I present on shopping channels all over the world and I make a big point of getting to understand who the customer is and not only understanding who she is from their marketing decks and they'll show you presentations. I like to go places mm. where they will have her. So, for example, Ruth Langsford, she does a lot of presenting on QVC and she had a great um, an exhibition last year. And I remember going along to that event because I wanted to understand better who the QVC UK customer was. I do more with QVC in America. Mm -hmm. So... And to understand the slight difference in that customer so that when I'm on air, I know who I'm talking to and I'm picturing what she's like. And I say her because it's a handful of blokes and all the rest are women. Mm. Um, so I'm picturing what she's like. But when I'm in Germany, for example, I'm, I present really differently on QVC Germany to what I would do here. Really? And I would wow. present really differently on a QVC here to I work on a hobby maker channel, for example, who are very specialist just in craft, mm -hmm. whereas QVC is a bit more generalist. Everyone seems to have heard of QVC. No one's ever heard of Hobby Maker. But if you're a hobbyist, if you're into your crafting, my word, you'll know exactly who they are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so what were you, what's, what's current? What were you up to today with QVC? Oh, we've always got a bit of everything. So <laughs> colouring's been massive uh, during the pandemic. Loads yes. of people have taken up craft during the pandemic. So a lot of what I'm doing on QVC at the moment are really 
get started in crafting kits. Mm-hmm. So everything you need if you want to start doing colouring or everything if you want to start doing your card making we have in there and some really basic machines if you really want to get into it. So mm. we had a lovely mix. I do every Wednesday at 11 o'clock on QVC now. I have to tune in. I love all that kind of stuff. I'm quite crafty. Oh, like hey, I tell you what, give me ha- watch me for half an hour. You invite me into your living room half an hour <laughs> and then you'll be giving me a call for a little box of it's stuff. It's happening already. Sent. I got you right in front of me and I'm like, count me in. <laughs> 11 o'clock on Wednesday. I'm there. <laughs> Um, and this has been like a, a, a lifetime that you've been doing it in your lifetime since you were at uni, right? This is when you started the business, is that yes. right? Yes, so I went off to university to study management because both my parents had a little wallpaper and paint shop in our village and my kind of life plan, I thought, was going to be I really like business, I enjoy helping in the shop so I'll go to university and learn how business should be done and I'll come back and show me dad a thing or two. That was my plan, right? <laughs> Motivation. So I went off to uni and I did one of those degrees where you do a couple of years studying then you go and work for a year and do your last year studying and that year because I had been dating my boyfriend since I was 15 yeah I heard about that prospect of coming to London this is the boyfriend who's now your husband now my husband 23 years they were all pretty amazing I love that so uh but yes but the prospect of of coming I mean I'm a real country bumpkin so Hmm. coming down to London and having to live away for the year filled me with absolute dread so I found my own little placement and I went and worked for this tiny little craft company and it just opened my eyes to this industry that I had no idea existed I absolutely fell in love. I fell in love with the customers. Mm. And I thought, I want to start a business here. And my dad really encouraged me to just do what you want, kid. You know, if you want to do that, you give it a go. And I always had in the back of my mind, if it doesn't work, I can always move back home and, you know, live with my parents and and help build the business Mm. up. And I was lucky in that Simon's a few years older than me. So he was able to pay our mortgage payments when I first started the business. So it meant that I didn't have to contribute to the family income. So I could really give the business a good go. And that's how I got started. So is your dad now like, he's seen you running like a multi-million pound business and he's like, I think you've made your point now, sorry about our business Do you know, it was probably about 15 years ago. I, I think, so the scary thing was my dad's always been in business and my dad's done all sorts. He's done literally everything from double glazing sales to growing mushrooms in the basement to buying bikes at the car boot sale and doing them up and having me <laughs> grandma run a bike shop. I saw him do everything when I was a proper real entrepreneur, but never had a big business, never had more than a couple of staff. And I started Crafter's Companion when I went back for my last year at uni, the last mm. year of studying. So I started it in the October and by the time I moved home in the summer, my business was already turning over more than the family business that had been going for... 25 years at that point and so I was turning to my dad for advice and support on building the business and I remember him looking at me one day and he just said kid you've long outgrown me I can support you in any way you want but I I can't show you how to do this anymore Mm. and then a few years ago we had a real heart to heart he was getting quite upset that I was it's when I first had the kids and he couldn't understand why I would travel so much and leave the kids at home. He could see that the kids were struggling with it. He could see I was struggling with it. And he's like, but you've been so successful and you've made all this money. Why Why do you go to America to do QVC? Why, why wouldn't you just stay at home and get one of your staff to do it? You know, I've got 250 staff. I've got 10 other people that present on TV. Why, why would you not just do that? And I said, Dad, you don't understand. It's That business is my third child and and I love what I do. I absolutely love it. I said, so I'm just trying to find a balance. I said, and it's not even about I'm trying to give the kids a great life and so I'm working hard to pay for that great life because we've kind of surpassed that now Mm. and that's what he couldn't get his head around. You're not, your life, you can't give the kids any better of a life for now working away and travelling more. 
but I, I just that success it's like a drug and you I want the business to be the best it can be you know and I I want I want to achieve as much as I can in my career but I want to balance that with giving the kids a great life as well and so my life seems like a constant juggle and he couldn't understand because when I was younger he worked really hard so that my mum could be the mum at home and she wasn't a stay-at-home mum he set her up a little business so that my mum and my nana worked part-time and then so they could, there was always, if my mum walked me to school, my nana would be the one to pick me up. And they they had a, a lifestyle business. They built the business around the needs of the family. Mm. I started off that way, but then the business got 100 times bigger than that. And now I can't flex the business to suit the family. I need to flex the family to suit the business. And that's the bit that my dad always struggled to get his head around. Yeah, but those things are so, they're so personal as well, those decisions. Mm-hmm. And we've all got the things that drive us and also the things that make us feel feel like a whole person yeah and clearly for you the, the business as you say like your your third baby but also just the thing that made sense to you about what, what makes you thrive and yeah. feel that zingy thing and have the energy and the spark in your head and all that good stuff I love what I do and, and especially you know shopping tv in America is another level to anything else you've seen and we're doing literally we do half a million pound of sales in an hour and and, and so I fly out there and I just think I've got this, you know, 250 mortgages get paid as a result of the sales I make on TV mm. and the the pride that you have of having built that company. And I know that I can go out there and I, I've done a big production, I can go and launch it and we can sell thousands of units on that one day and make the company really successful, which creates more, you know, prosperity and more employment. That's amazing. And I know that if I do that and, and, and I do a half-hearted job by somebody else going and selling that product on air, I'll be really frustrated that we didn't do the best we could and I know I can do better. And yeah. that's, always, that's always the thing that drives me is I want to do it because I know there's nothing like me. I've invented that product. I want to go and tell everyone how awesome it is. Yeah, it probably just doesn't have that same zing if someone else tries to no. step in and, and speak it how you, how you found it. It's not the same. You'll know if, you, if you've ever watched any of these shopping channels there's nothing like hearing the person who invented the product standing up there and telling you why they made it, why it's going to make your life better. And I think that's what, that's why I love shopping TV so much. I'm a product person. I love to design, invent and make product. Mm. And then I love to go and show the world why it's so great. Yeah. And I guess for you, everything is just sort of blossomed to another bit and another bit and another bit. And it's still like, well, where did these roads lead me? It's exciting, isn't it, to see what might happen next? No, that's the problem. And, and I feel like <laughs> and that's the conversation I have with my dad. He's like, well, you've got the business road. And then when I started Dragon's Den, I obviously built a, an investment portfolio. Mm. And, you know, I've now done four seasons and that, that investment portfolio keeps getting bigger and bigger every year. And that takes a lot of managing. But that's so exciting in and of itself. So is that not the case before Dragon's Den? Is it quite literal that that brought you to invest in things that you weren't necessarily... Yes. So I'd done a little bit of investing. So in my early 20s, I got invited to be in an all-female investment group in the northeast called Gabriel Investors. And the proposition is there's loads of investment groups all over the country, but they're nearly all men. Mm. I'm not going to lie, there was one other one that had women in their group that we knew when we researched. So this was when I was in my early 20s, 15 years ago. And I just thought, when women approach things, we seem to approach it in a different way. We we don't just want to invest in those businesses. We want to nurture and mentor and support the business owners at at another level. Mm -hmm. Hence, we called ourselves Gabriel Investors. So it was like 
we were business angels as opposed to Dragon's Den and the Dragon. <laughs> that's what we always used to say. We said, we're like Dragon's Den, but we're angels instead. Um, and that's what got me into investing. So I'd done a few investments in my early 20s, but only a handful. And it had really it had taught me about investing and how investing works, but not at the pace and speed. You know, I, I do 18 days in Dragon's Den and I'll come out half a million quid lighter and wow. with, with about 10 new businesses in my portfolio. Is it a bit like getting business drunk? Do you know that's a great way to think about it? When I'm with the dragons next time, I'll say that. (laughs) We've got really, because the BBC just wheel them in on a conveyor belt. Literally, it's brilliant. Someone else has done all the work to go and find the best budding entrepreneurs in the country, vetted them, helped prepare them, helped them work out how to give the perfect pitch. And then they sit us down in those chairs and wheel them out in front of us one at a time. It is just... as a business investor, there is no better setup at all. Yeah, it's Phenomenal. pretty peachy when you put it that way. It's like, okay, just sit back and see what... Bring me like. the next one. <laughs> <laughs> and it's brilliant telly. And, I mean, it's funny, you can tell within the first couple of minutes with most people if you think they they seem like they're potentially people worth investing in terms of the actual entrepreneurs, I mean. Yeah. Pr- product aside, I read a, a quote, I think you'd said, you can have the best product with mediocre yeah. entrepreneurs and it won't work but uh, even a mediocre product with brilliant entrepreneurs be fantastic i yeah. stand by that all the time i know within a couple of minutes of them walking through them lift doors if if, if i'm interested in that product or the service or whatever it is they're offering and if you'd asked me before i went on the den you know what sort of businesses i would probably have been like oh yes it's got to be product businesses and i'm gonna you know i'm only going to invest in ones that can be scaled this way the things that i knew And then actually, I look, I mean, there's one business in my portfolio. They're a franchise business, and I never thought I would have been interested in that. Service model, and it's first aid for kids. But the the woman, Kate and her husband, they walked through the door, and their story was so compelling, Mm. and they were such incredible, passionate entrepreneurs, and they brought their six kids in the den, and they were getting their kids to demonstrate the first aid. And I just fell in love with the business and the people. Mm. And you can see, I mean, I know how I can take your business to the next level. I know how, how I can help parachute it. And it feels a privilege for me to get to be involved in their business mm. and help them go to a new level. That's the thing I love about the show. And it also feels like just the very face of business has changed pretty radically in that now that whole idea of if you're a business person it seems that mentoring is very much part of what a lot of people bring alongside it so helping other people but when you started was that so much the culture in business do you know it wasn't and I've got a really interesting view on mentoring because I've got loads of mentors and most of them have no idea I even exist they are I've the view that I take to mentoring is yes there's people you can sit down with face to face but then if if I look at for example QVC mm-hmm. when I first started out I wanted to get really good at shopping TV so I would watch hours and hours of the shows and pick the presenters that I loved the most and then I would psychoanalyze why do I like you so much what 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 do I think's brilliant about you and actually are there any things that I don't like about you that I might take out and I would try and model myself on those people and I see that as almost a kind of mentorship mm. so for all there wasn't as many mentors around in person maybe when I was starting up in business that they were brilliant another great example Duncan Bannatyne one of the mm. former dragons before me Never met the bloke in my life. I read his book when I was in my early 20s and it really connected with me on such a deep level that I felt like, do you know what? If he can do it, 
no reason I can't. There's nothing special about him. He's just an ordinary Joe like I am. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go and do like what he is. So he was a bit of a business mentor to me, mm. although I'd never met him and I, and I didn't know. And people always, they'll reach out to me on LinkedIn and they'll say, oh, can you mentor me? And I think you don't really understand what you're asking. You don't know what you want. You just think, I need a business mentor. Are they kind of almost looking for a sort of golden... A solution. Yeah. Yep, they're looking Someone for a solution. Someone lifting them out and going, And yes, sometimes them. mentor... Uncle Tuka, I call him. Tuka, one of the other dragons. <laughs> Fantastic business mentor mm. for me. And I do have... You know, I'm lucky enough to sit down in his office with him a couple of times a year and talk to him about business. And he, he really helps me in that way. But not everybody has the opportunity to do that with someone. So I think there's always an option out there. Well, I guess what you're talking about there is as well, there's the the kernel of being an entrepreneur in itself is looking for the opportunity and how you can find it even if yes. no one's sort of had that big yeah big hand no in the sky pointing down at you and offer you in on a plate life yeah. doesn't work like that you've got to go and sort it out uh, seek it out for yourself and it's not for everybody i mean i think it involves sacrifice it involves drive it involves tenacity it probably involves no plan b would you say I'll tell you what's really difficult for me often. And it's, I remember when I first had the kids and I would, and I would go to the mummy groups and I'd meet the other parents and they'd say to me, you're so lucky that you're running your own business and you, you can work the business around the kids. And, you know, I have to go back to work when my kids are a year old and I'm going to have to just do a nine to five or whatever it is. And, and I would smile through gritted teeth because I think that's the perception to the outside world. Yeah. And, and I think they don't, people don't see the sacrifices. They don't, they don't see this, the stuff you have to go without or how you have to work. You know, I, I, I was back to work after three months of having the kids. Now I've tried to balance. I only went back part time, but I couldn't have had longer off. Well, it just wasn't an option for me. And, and I think quite often the reality of business, I always say to someone, being in business or running your own business, it's, it's not a job. It's not a career choice. It's a lifestyle choice. You are wedded to that business. You and the business are one and the same thing. Mm -hmm. And you've got to be prepared for that lifestyle. And I think that's what I, that's maybe one of them things I find when people come in the den. Have they got that or haven't they? Is this a job to them? Or are they as passionate about this business as I am about my business? Because if they're not, it's never going to work. Yeah. And I guess that's, again, like quite a bespoke thing, isn't it? Because for some people, they might be very wedded to it, but also work out that they need some boundaries about how they balance it but that's very personal that decision it's personal and it's difficult you know I'm really lucky in that I had the support of Simon my boyfriend then now my husband that I was able to give the business my all when I first set up I didn't have a mortgage to pay I didn't have dependents to worry about I could literally live sleep and breathe the business Mm. and he got a tiny look in from time to time (laughs) Whereas I think a lot of people, if you start it when you're in a different point in your life and you've maybe got kids or you've got a mortgage to consider, it's a totally different consideration and you can't give the business your all. And I was lucky that I could give the business my all at the time when I had my all to give. And then when I got a little bit older and I wanted to have the kids and we ended up putting off having kids a little bit later than I'd planned because the business was taken off a bit more than I expected. But then when we did it, I was like, just remember the whole point of having the business is that I wanted to be able to... I wanted to start the business early so that I could do that when I had a point in my life where I could give it my life. Mm-hmm. And then now the business only gets part of my life because the kids and the family get yeah. the bigger part of my life. Yeah. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So your kids are now nine and six, is that right? Yes, Oliver's yeah. the oldest and Charlie's the youngest, two boys. Sweet, yes. And so what was going on when you had your eldest? Do you remember? So, yeah, I was 29 when I had Oliver and my plan was always to have kids probably in my early 20s. I started the business when I was 21. And so because the business had really taken off, we put it back and put it back. And so it was probably, I was 26, 27 when we decided, right, we'll we'll try. We'll not try, but we'll stop not trying. You know, that, that phrase when everyone's in, where we say that time, oh, we're not going to start trying, but we'll just stop not trying. Stop the birth control and everything. And there I am a week later, guzzling folic acid like it's going out of here. Not, not telling Simon, though, because we're not really trying. We're just not not trying. <laughs> yeah. And then we were not really trying, but I was trying for about a year. And I was like, oh, I thought this would kind of just happen by now. And then we were two years on and I was like, oh, I really thought it would have been a bit easier than this. Um, and I remember it really started getting to me. And I talk about this a lot in my book, actually, and it's something I never really opened up a lot about. But I always remember it was that thing of I thought, oh, I'll, I'll be pregnant this month. And then I'd get my period and I wouldn't be pregnant and I'd be distraught. So I'd eat myself to oblivion for the next couple of weeks. And then I'd think, oh, my God, I'm, I'm putting weight on here. This is not good. But never mind, because I'm probably going to be pregnant this month. So it'll be fine. And then it would come around, I'd get my period again. And it just went on like that for months and probably about a year. And I remember it was Christmas that year. And I always have the world and his wife around for Christmas dinner. I always host everything. And it would get to that point when, and I, I'm always really conscious not to ask people, 
are you not having, are you not thinking about starting a family because you don't know where they're at now. I remember having been there and it was that Christmas and I'd served up a lovely Christmas dinner and here's the thing, I was my period was due on the 21st or the 22nd and it hadn't come. I got really excited. And then by the time I got to the 23rd, 24th, still hadn't come. Was doing pregnancy tests. They were negative. But I'm thinking, oh, it still could be. It still could be. And I woke up on Christmas morning and had me period. And I was distraught. Absolutely distraught. I had to pull myself together, put on a dress that I clearly couldn't fit into and squeeze into with two pairs of spanks. Felt rubbish about myself. Put Christmas dinner on for 15 people. And we got to the end of the dinner and my dad said to us, well, kid, that was absolutely perfect. The only thing that could just top it off and make it even better next year would be if we could have the pitter-patter of tiny feet. And my husband just put his hand under the table and just put his hand on my knee and I give me stock line that I always would. Dad, you know we're far too busy with the business to be thinking about kids. And that was me defence making. I never knew anybody wanted to know. I didn't want people to know we were trying because mm. I didn't want the, how's it going? You know, yeah. And especially you don't talk about it with your parents because then you have to... I don't want parents to think about us having sex. You know, I just, we think about, so, so I would just never talked about it and I never told anybody. And it was, uh, it was Boxing Day. My sister came around and she'd clearly got worried about me weight. And so she said, I was thinking, why don't me and you start Slimming World? And I could tell what she was doing. So I was like, oh, okay, then no problem. So she got us the magazine, she signed us up and she says, we'll start now. And she was going home. She, she lived down south at the time. She was come back up the next week. She came back up the week later and we got weight and she'd lost two pounds and I'd put a pound on. And she was like, you're not even trying what you're not trying for. And I broke down crying. I was like, Helen, we're trying for a baby. We've been trying for a couple of years now. It's not happening. I'm absolutely gutted about it. I haven't told anybody. My dad's making it worse, you know. And um, do you know anybody else who was just giving us a big hug and said, oh, there, there, it'll be all right. And she didn't. And she looked at us and she says, well, this isn't helping, is it not? She's feeling sorry for yourself. She says, eat not. She says, your mind's not in a good place. Your body's not in a good place. You're overweight. You need to get your shit together, basically. And she said, right, we're going to do it. And she put an action plan together with us. She was really hard. And she says, stop trying for a few months. We're going to go on Slim and World together. We'll support each other. You can lose a bit of weight. Stop and trying means you'll stop fixating on it. You just have a couple of months off. Best thing anyone could have done for us. And three months later, and when I wasn't trying, fell pregnant with our Oliver. Wow. Wow. Well, firstly, I'm thrilled that you ended up having your baby. And secondly, I think there'll be so many people that relate to that, particularly that thing of not wanting to talk about it and dreading the questions. And I, d- I actually don't really understand why people do ask questions about people having... they mean having, well. Of course they mean they well, mean but, well. But if someone's not bringing it up themselves, they, there's a chance they might not want to talk about mm-hmm. it. And there's also, it's such a personal thing. And... Um, you know, things can be going on in people's lives behind closed doors all the time that you don't need to know about that. And if it's wanting a, a baby when it's not happening, that runs very deep, doesn't really it? Really deep. Oh, don't worry. Ah, I've given me dad a hard time of it. He <laughs> knows now. I'm getting the impression <laughs> really bad for it. you and your family are quite good at straight talking. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Takes one to know one. <laughs> and um, so how old were the, the... Was it much easier with your second baby, if you don't mind me asking? Was that- yes, I, th- I think so. So I had my implant put back in after we had our Oliver 
and then um, I got it taken out a couple of couple of years later. And I remember the doctor, who's actually now a really good friend of mine, because she had a baby around the same time as me. And um, I went to get my implant taken out, and she said, "I just need you to sign this form, and I do need you to understand that if you have the implant taken out, you're not protected, and you could fall pregnant." I said, "Well, yes, Helen, that, that that's the point. That's why I'm here." <laughs> and I said, um, "I thought you might be thinking about it as well." Um, little bit. Her kid was about a year younger than mine. She said, "Yeah, I wasn't sensible enough to have an implant put back in. I'm six months pregnant." <laughs> <laughs> So hers are quite close together, but our boys are quite good friends now that school together. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. And it sounds like, as well, your husband, I love that thing of you saying he put his hand under the table and just gave your hand a squeeze privately when your yeah. dad had said about the pitter-patter. Yeah, he, kn- he knew it's, we're quite private people. We, you know, we don't, we didn't want to talk about that, even with the family. The fact that I hadn't even shared that with my sister, mm. I did a few weeks later, you know, with the breakdown, but... Yeah, we just hadn't wanted to talk to anybody about it, and he knew that. And, and I'm a talker, and Simon's a thinker. We're both, you know, being in business, we have our MBTIs done, and uh, I can tell you I'm an ENFP, and I'm the opposite end of the spectrum to Simon. Sorry, you've had your what's done? <laughs> so, this is I was business. nodding like I knew, but then I realised I didn't personality understand. Personality profile. Okay. So, yes, so <laughs> my personality profile is exactly the total opposite end of the spectrum. There's four points they measure your personality on. Okay. And I'm the exact opposite of Simon. Really? In every one of the four. And wow. so I've come yang. to learn. And, and the good thing is it's helped me in business, but it's also probably helped me understand my relationships with people and, and, and how we behave. So if I think about that with my husband, because because we work together, I know his personality profile. And he accepts now that if we need to, if I need to, we need, we need to sort something out. I need to think, I need to talk about it mm. to work my way through. He needs to think about it and internalise it. Mm. So when something's bothering him, I know what not to push him to talk about it. Yeah. But he's also learned that when something's bothering me, I want to talk about it. And he's going to have to accept that. Yeah. He's going to have to. Actually, I, I want to talk. He needs to listen and just give us a mumble every now and again and make a fresh pot of tea when I need one. So how, are these done in, does it do it in numbers? Is it the personality test that's numbers? Or you can do numbers, you can do colour profiles. This okay. one's a letter. Letters, letters. okay. Yeah. Is that something where you're sort of trying to work out what the kids are sometimes? Like, oh, God, that could be it. Do you know, <laughs> I've never done that. I might try that. <laughs> I might try and get them to see if they do MBTI tests for kids. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to Google that. After <laughs> I, if, you, if you find it, send it my way. I'll be really fascinated. <laughs> I've definitely got some different ends of the spectrum going on here. And I suppose if, if, if business is so much part of your... Not just your what your working day, but as you say, your your lifestyle. Is it sometimes quite hard to imagine the idea of your kids not having that same gene, that same that same drive about something? Or do you never really feel do like you know that? That's really interesting. nobody's ever asked me that before. People always ask me if they have aspirations for the kids to grow up and take over the family business mm. or go into business, and I don't. I want the kids to do what's going to make them happy. But nobody's ever asked me about that in the drive. And you're right, I would be gutted if those kids didn't have drive. I just think it's it's such a big part of who I am and it and it's made me successful, not only in, in the business, but in so many parts of my life. And whenever you meet, if you speak to any of my friends or anybody who knows me and you ask them to describe me, it's probably the first word that would come out. They'd, they'd say she's so passionate and she's really driven about what she does. Whether that's something in business whether that's my tv career or whatever i just i want to be the best at what i do in any walk of life and that that drive and passion to succeed is what what gets me there and i'd be distraught if the kids weren't like that i think i would just want to sit them down and shake them all the time but i've got two boys and i've got to see them through their teenagers so i'm probably going to have to learn how to cope with that aren't i <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's fun. <laughs> I know. When, I mean, my eldest is now nearly 19, and I'm like, oh, what muggins am I? I've got to do this four more times. Like, this is just ridiculous. <laughs> but um, when your dad had that talk with you, and he said, oh, you know, isn't it enough where your business is at and be home more? Was that ever a voice in your head when they, particularly when they're little and you're trying to, that bit when you're first a new mum and you've still got the work coming and the... I remember, so I had our Oliver and um, when I was pregnant with Oliver, QVC America got in touch with me. Now, I'd never worked with QVC America. I'd worked with HSN, who's the biggest competitor to QVC, but never directly with QVC. And they rang me and they tried to poach me to go on QVC, which was probably at that time the biggest opportunity of my career in TV shopping. It's not something you say no to. But I was pregnant and I was too far pregnant to be able to go, to be able to travel. And so it was a case of, well, how soon could I go? So, and I, and I remember I wanted to breastfeed the kids and we were still working out a date when I'd first had our Oliver. And I remember at one point working out how many feeds I would need to pump to be able to go if he was a couple of months old. And I, I worked out I could do a round trip in 52 hours and I couldn't pump enough milk in the eight week. I couldn't build up enough of a store in eight weeks away to be able to go and leave him and do the 52 hour round trip. And I still needed to go. So in the end, me and my husband, I remember we both went over to Philadelphia and I needed to do, I had to be there for a week, I had to be there for eight days. So we took this three month old baby to Philadelphia in the snow in February for eight days. And I was just like, what, what am I doing? What, what am I actually doing? But it was this huge opportunity. Mm. And I think I was very naive as many new mothers were and I'd, I felt like I'd had it drilled into me breast is best we must feed the baby breast milk and and so and I'd struggled breastfeeding as a lot of women do but I was adamant I wasn't going to give my baby any formula because this is what the hospital told me to do and I remember getting to America and on the I'd fed the baby on the plane we'd landed and he wouldn't feed and then I thought, well, it'd be all right, It'll give it another hour, and he wouldn't feed. And we'd gone on five or six hours, and he wouldn't feed. So then I had one reserve bag of frozen breast milk that we'd taken in the, you know, ready for the next day when I had to be in QVC. And I, and I remember he took that from the bottle, but he wouldn't feed from me. And I was distraught. And so I was up all night pumping to try and leave enough milk so that I could go to QVC the next day for that training. I remember being in the closet pumping at QVC so that I had enough milk when I got... It was just ridiculous. And it because I wouldn't give the baby any formula milk. And, and in the end, he wouldn't feed the whole time we're there. And I had to. I had to go out and buy some formula milk. And here, presto, he didn't die. <laughs> and he, fed, he knew it wasn't the end of the world. But I, I, you know, as a new mother, you put yeah. all these pressures on yourself. And so much. I had the pressures of work and the pressures of the kid. And it, and it, was, it was just too much. And, and I always feel like our Oliver did that as a, as a bit of a... That'll teach a mummy for dragging me to the other side of the world. <laughs> Not, not that a three-month-old knows that, but I just thought, this is karma. This is what I deserved for dragging my baby all the way over here. Now he's going to refuse the breast. He's not going to breastfeed, and it's going to be an absolute disaster. And actually, I found out with the second one, same thing happened with the second one, but I didn't take him to America. He just stopped feeding so far in. Turns out he had a posterior, undiagnosed tongue tie. And they said to me, runs in the family. So it turns out that probably was what the matter with our Oliver. And I'd never, I'd struggled feeding, but I'd persevered. Yeah. He'd always been underweight, probably wasn't feeding enough from me because of his tongue tie. Never knew what it was and I, I'd blamed myself and putting the business and QVC, uh, QVC airing above 
the needs of my kid. And, and honestly, I just, I felt riddled with guilt for years. I say welcome to Maternal Guilt Club. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I completely relate to all that. And I, I think when you're working and a new mum and you're, you feel like the, I remember getting quite obsessive about the breast milk thing because it felt like that was a thing I could do for my baby that I could provide that kept me connected to the fact that I just had a baby and also was something that would mean that I wasn't being t- totally separated because if yeah. I wasn't feeding feeding them then I, I could have been off going to work straight away because yeah. with newborns particularly it's all quite binary you know if they kept the right temperature and they kept fed and they sleep They'll be all right? Yes, they'll be all right. So the only thing that could keep me as, you know, the maternal, my bond was feeding them. And I got myself totally tied in knots with it so many times. So many women do. Yeah. And I look at how much more laid back I was with the second. We combination fed him from the off. Mm. But I think for me as well, I had gestational diabetes through both my pregnancies. And and it means that the baby is at much higher risk of type 2 diabetes in later life. And one of the things that reduces the the type 2 diabetes and the likelihood of getting it is being breast, uh, having breast milk. Okay. And so in my head, I felt like and it, there's no, I can't say why I had gestational diabetes, but I know they tested me because my BMI was over 30. Because for all I'd got my weight under control after our Helen had a go at me, it wasn't, it wasn't still as, it wasn't back where it was before I was, before I was trying to get pregnant. So I blamed myself. I thought, you know what? It's my fault I was overweight when I got pregnant. Therefore, it's my fault I've got gestational diabetes. It's my fault that he's at higher risk of type two diabetes in late life. And the only thing I can do to reduce that. Is, feed, is breastfeed him. So I'm absolutely going to do that move, Hello High Water. And I look back now and the whole thing was so utterly ridiculous. Mm. But in that moment with the mum guilt, you just, you just do whatever you can. Yeah, and it's very emotional, all that stuff, and hormonal. Everything's running so high, isn't mm-hmm. it? And in amongst it all, you're sort of trying to find your way back to yourself. And did you... If, so your personality and instincts are so integral to how you go about everything you're doing with the business. Did you ever worry about how you would feel the other side of, you know, when you're a mum, if you feel like your old self sort of thing? Feel my old self. You know, it's so funny because I feel like I wear so many different hats. It's like, which one's me? And it was just a new <laughs> hat that I learned to put on. It was this motherhood hat. And, and so I didn't know if this was how I should feel or how you shouldn't feel or, or whatever. Mm. You'll laugh though. I'll, I'll tell you a story of the, of the breastfeeding. So I remember um, Oliver was five weeks old and Simon needed to go to America. And it was away eight nights. And all I wanted was my mum to come and stay with us for eight nights. And I was very conscious that Simon's an only child and his parents were really worried that I'm so close with my mum that they wouldn't get as much of a look in with the grandkids. So being the model daughter-in-law, and I tell you, you look up model daughter-in-law in the dictionary, you will find a picture of me. <laughs> I mean, literally, you'll certainly believe me after this story, right? So being the model daughter-in-law, I, I agreed for Simon's mum and dad to stay over as many nights as my mum would so that they felt like they'd also got involved and none of them had breastfed either me or Simon so they didn't understand about breastfeeding and my mum had come along on a couple of breastfeeding courses with us so she kind of got it was supporting us with it Simon's mum dad had no idea right and all they could see is a hormonal woman an underweight child the whole thing was just an absolute mitigated disaster I wasn't getting any sleep they perceived their grandkid wasn't getting fed well why don't we just give him a bottle and and so they were buying in formula milk or they were buying and and I know now, looking back on it in the cold light of day, they were just trying to be helpful. Mm. But in that moment, 
I was like, this is hard enough as it is without you making it worse. And that feels very threatening if someone's saying, like, can you, this is what you need to do to solve oh, this. And I remember once they'd come and they'd bought a book and it was that contented little baby book. Oh, I put the that one, in the bin. Oh, the Gina one where Ford. the, that's the woman. Oh, yeah. The devil woman. <laughs> and and, and, and they, they'd bought this book and they were reading the book. And, and, and I was like, what are you doing? And I know they only meant well. And I just remember it was four o'clock in the morning and I was sitting in the bed in floods of tears thinking, why are you in my house? You just need to get out. I need my mum to come and look after us. Mm. And on the phone to Simon and Simon's in America because going absolutely mental, wants to ring and blast his mum and dad. And I'm saying, don't, you know, they don't even know I'm crying. They're, they're in bed in the other room. And, and, and I remember what I did, I had a chat with my dad and my dad had a really good insight into it. And he said to me, they don't mean bad. They just don't know any different. They don't understand why you're wanting to breastfeed the baby, why it's better. He said, I didn't understand until you've just explained it all. Because I said to him, this is why I want to breastfeed the baby. Mm. He said, I get it now, but I didn't. He said, I just see you're struggling, the baby's struggling. Here's another option that in my eyes is just as good as the first option. So why not take the easy option? He said, and that's all they'll be seeing. So I remember I held a summit and I invited my <laughs> mum and dad around. And Simon's mum and dad round, and I made them sit on the couch, and no one was allowed to hold the baby. I sat and held the baby, and I and I'd, I went to the hospital and I picked up the breastfeeding DVD, thirty minute DVD, and I made them sit and watch it, and then I handed them all an information pack with all the pamphlets about why <laughs> breastfeeding was the best thing for their grandson, and I told them to go away and read it, and I told them I know you all mean well, but stop. Just support if you mean well, support me in what I'm trying to do. Don't try and suggest otherwise. And I, and I remember my friends all laughed as years later. They're like, I can't, I can't believe you held a Blumen's summit <laughs> and told you in. But but I, it, that's that's how I knew to deal with it. That's, yeah, yeah. I guess that's the business me coming out there. Well, also it sounds like you didn't have any like what's the word? Um, it's quite it's looking something quite head on, yes. isn't it? <laughs> Don't get me wrong though. When Simon got back from America. He absolutely went through them like a dose of salt. <laughs> so I felt like they'd still got there. I'd still had my moment. I remember going up for a long bath that night. I was in the bath about three hours thinking, bloody hell, he still haven't gone. Mm. He went through them like a do- like a ton of bricks saying, my poor wife, I can't believe you've done that. You've made her feel rubbish. Did you know she was sitting in the bedroom crying for five hours through the night because of how you'd made her feel? So, um, yeah, they've been great ever since. <laughs> yeah, they're scared of another summit about anything. <laughs> <laughs> and what what is... How similar is your children's childhood to yours? Do you know, it's so important to me. I, I'm on this quest to try and make it the same, and I know it can't, I know it can't be, but I'm, I feel like I am the person I am today because of the values I've grown up with, because of the way my childhood was and the way my parents brought me up. And part of that is that we didn't have any money when I was younger, you know, and we had to make do. And I think that's really instilled the the value of money in me and the, the value of working hard to achieve something. And my kids don't have to work hard to achieve a great life. We provide a great life for them. And it's really difficult balancing, you know, I'd love to go on really fancy holidays and and, and, and enjoy that. But then that's not what I did when I was a kid. I don't want my kids to think that's the norm. And I remember a couple of years ago when, when our Oliver was really young, um, I took him to Thomas Land. Oh, my word. But we had this amazing time. And then the next summer, Simon's mum and dad took him to Thomas Land. And then I booked up for us to go in the October half term. And Simon said, we're, we're not going. And I said, well, well, why not? He said, well, he's been to Thomas Land this year. I said, I know, but I, I, haven't, I haven't been with him. I haven't taken him, so we're going to go again. And he said, no, that's a really special thing. 
that you, you should only do, you know, once in a blue moon, once a year. Not something that you can do all the time. And that's the thing. I can afford to do this stuff anytime I want. Doesn't mean you should. And it's even now, you know, I, I really, I grew up and my parents, we couldn't afford holidays when I was younger. My dad had a transport company. So what he used to do at the end of every summer is he used to get an old caravan from the tip and he used, he was quite handy. He used to fit, retrofit the caravan into one of his vans. If it had f like reached the end of its life, he'd take a big transit van, retrofit the caravan. And I mean, he would cut the windows out of the caravan and fit them into the van, the sunroof, wow. build little beds for us all and we'd go holiday in the next summer in this homemade camper van that my dad had made. Homemade and he used to do these every summer. I loved it. And, so, and how many are you? It's just you and your sister? Just me and my sister. So, I, I, and, and those life experiences really stayed with me and, mm. and meant so much. And I, I became more of an outdoorsy person as a result of it. And, and I want my kids to grow up like that. Simon, no chance. I'm not sleeping in a tin box. <laughs> why, why would I do that? So um, It's my, not for everyone. <laughs> for my dad's lockdown project, I bought him a clapped out old van. I spent five grand on this van. And I said, we're not getting the caravan from the tip, dad, but I will buy a second hand. So we bought a 20 year old caravan for a thousand pounds and my dad retrofit the caravan into the into the van for me. But I said it had to be good. Yeah, to, yeah you know. He's got better over the years. So um, that was his lockdown project. That's really sweet. And did your so, boys get involved with some of that? They did. That's And cute. now me and the boys, it's only a three birth because Simon won't come. So me and the boys oh, wow. go camper van. Oh, he really, really held out on he that. He really did hold out. Sleeping in a tin box. <laughs> <laughs> so my mum and dad have got one as well. Um, so we go we go camper vanning with my mum my and dad. That's and, and really my sister cute. and her, her husband will come. They bought a nice top of the range VW camper that's all singing, all dancing. Mm -hmm. Granddad Frank made mine, which is a bit more special. That's so cute. I love that. And I think, I mean, look, I think for a lot of modern parents and getting the kids to understand money is quite tricky anyway, because mm -hmm. we don't really have many much time with like pet pounds and, and, you know, notes or anything. I don't really, my kids don't really see actual coins hardly at all actually i suppose so yeah which is quite strange isn't it because when i was little it was all about counting up your counting cash counting the money yeah uh, and maybe some people do still give their children their pocket money and in know, really real money but I, I mean i don't i use an app and yeah. then they buy things digitally and they've got a, it comes with like a little card yeah and so getting them to understand value is quite hard i think I tell you, I was really proud of our little Charlie. He's, he's only six, and I think it was not last Mother's Day, the one before, and um, we'd ordered some flowers. So I'd ordered flowers for Nana Sue and flowers for Grandma Val. And um, Grandma Val just lives around the corner, so I had us delivered directly there. Nana Sue's I had to have delivered to our house so we could take them over. And they came, and the kids' eyes lit up, and they were because they were massive bouquets. How much have you spent on that, Mummy? Because in their eyes, we could have just picked some flowers from the garden. I said, well, it's really special for Nana Sue for Mother's Day. So, you know, I've, I've spent £40 on... Oh, I can't believe you spent £40 just on flowers, Mummy. And I thought, well, it's good that they had that value. And then, where's Grandma Val's? And I said, oh, well, it's gone to Gran's house. Well, did you spend £40 on hers as well? I said, well, I did. Is it just the same size? I said, I said it is. And I had to take... They wanted to go around and see because they wanted to be fair and made sure that we treat everybody fairly and spent this. And I was really impressed that they'd understood the value of the money and mm. they were very much fixated on the, the fairness as well. And I thought, do you know what? You sometimes worry if the lessons you're teaching them are really starting to sink in. Mm -hmm. And then you hear something like that and you think, oh, some of them are. Definitely. And I think, as you say, if you've got family values, that's the thing you can impart. But also I think, you know, you and your husband are modelling hard work. 
And, you know, I think they will... That's something that definitely seeps in, doesn't it? i tell you what was lovely. We, um, over New Year, we went to Spain. We got a house out in Spain and I invited my uni girlfriends. So that my friends came with their husbands, with their kids. And um, one night I was sitting chatting to one of the other dads and their little boys, only two. And, and But our Charlie, my six-year-old, had really nurtured him and taken care of him on the whole holiday desperate you just desperately wanted to look after him and actually my eldest one's probably more the nurturing one like that but charlie had really taken to little freddie and i remember the dad sitting having a chat with me and and he basically just explained what fantastic kids how we i was, should be so proud of the kids and i said i am and i said the thing i'm the most proud of you know I, I, i'm less bothered about are they accomplished at school are they getting the best grades are they at the top of the class are they are they good at sports i'm less bothered about that i just want them to be good people and seeing how great our charlie was with their kid i hadn't told him to do any of that that's just him too that's in his nature and that was the thing i was the most proud of of him i remember the dad saying to me but you do understand why he's like that that's the values that you've instilled in him and i'd never thought about it like that i thought that he must see that we're like that with and that's what he's picked up on and and yeah that was without a shadow of a doubt the most proud i felt of them kids mm. and like i said it's really not about their achievements it's about what good people they are and that's, Definitely. that's all you want for your kids isn't it Definitely. i think i, I couldn't agree more with that and i, I think I was wondering, do you ever, I mean, your kids, they're getting now to that bit where they're old enough to ask questions about when you're working and what time you're going to be home and all that kind of thing. And I think for me, going away for work when my children were little was actually looking back a lot easier mm-hmm. because they only really know what's in the front of them. And when I'm gone, as long as they've got someone with them that makes them yep. feel safe and happy, they don't really count the days. Yep. But when they get older, I do even now have to sometimes have a bit of a talking with myself about it being okay to prioritise the work that I'm doing and it be okay for me to, to, you know, for that to be something that I need to do. Yeah. Is that something you have to do for yourself? It's so hard. And you're right, when they were little, they would cry. But they would cry all the time anyway. So you don't, you tell yourself, oh, they're crying because I'm going away. But you don't actually know if that's the case or not. Yeah. Whereas now they're older. My little lad said to me last week, I, I had to come down to London. And he said, um, should we move to London, mummy? And, and I'm such a... Country. I am homegirl through and through. I will never leave the northeast. I will never leave the village. You know, I grew up within the same area. Oh, I'm really? Never you li- literally never, very close? So That's close. Sweet. I live 10 minutes away from my mum and dad. Simon's mum and dad live around the corner. Never leave it. And I was astounded that he said that. And I was like, well, but if we do that, we won't see Nana Sue and Granddad John all the time. And and he, he's like, I know, but but then we would just see you all the time. And I'm like, I don't even come to London that often, you know, a couple of times a month. And and it was that thing of, oh, my God, he's feeling it so much. Mm. And, and I tell myself it's okay because he's with the grandparents when I'm not here. And, you know, Simon will be the one doing the school runs and pickups and that. And we manage it. And, and clearly it's not. Clearly it is getting to him and bothering him. But yeah. you've... It's part of who I am. And if I don't go and be who I am, mm. I'll resent those kids for taking it away from me. So you've, you've got to find that balance. You've got That's to do what makes way you around. happy too. Something that you could actually resent resent the kids for like actually stopping you doing those things as well. I don't think I've ever really thought about it that way around. I've never resented them, but I'd hate to feel like yeah. I changed who I was to think... I could be a, a great mum. I know I'm a really great mum. I'm not there as much as some other mums maybe are, but it's not about the quantity. To me, it's about the quality. It's about, am I still making sure they're great people and am I making the most of the time that I do have with them? And yes, I'm away from home, maybe it's one, sometimes two nights a week, 
but then I make the most of the other time that I am. But you know what it's like. I'll just end up running ragged. I mean, yeah. I did a, a lot of work back end of last year on a new BBC show, which was filmed out of Glasgow. So I used to have to do a day a week up in Glasgow. And I remember I got into this routine whereby every time I had to travel to Glasgow, I'd pick the kids up from school, do the tea, have the night with them, get my jammers on, get into bed with them, lie there till they went to sleep, get back up, take my jammers off, put my clothes on, pack my suitcase and leave at nine o'clock and travel through the night and get there at one o'clock in the morning, knowing that I had a a 6am call time for a full day Mm. to then travel back that night. But it was worth it to have that evening there. And I I look at what I put, I mean, 38 now, I was ending up travelling through the night like this sometimes two and three nights a week. And it's, it's not, I, I, my body can't probably keep taking that, but that's the sacrifice I'm making so that it doesn't feel to the kids like I'm away as much. Yeah, yeah. It's finding that balance all the time. I've done exactly the same sort of thing. And I think as well that uh, experience now as well has led me to not take it so deep if other parents say of sort of slightly, you know, something casual about how how infrequently they leave their kids. It used to cut really deep. Like, oh, oh my God, I must be awful because I'm not... That following person. that suit yeah but now I'm like much more secure in in my style of parenting and as you, I think you've put it really well when you say about the the quality over quantity actually yeah. and being able to be really present actually when you are with them being present is my number one goal in anything and it's not just being present with the kids it's being present with work as well and I it was a really difficult lesson I learned this one so before COVID I used to travel to the States once a month And I used to have to take the 6am flight from Newcastle on a Sunday morning Mm. to get there. It's a three-leg journey. I used to get there at 6 o'clock on the evening, their time. And because it was 6 o'clock, I used to leave the house at 4am. So Saturday night, put the kids to bed. They were quite happy that I was there. We talked about the fact that I wouldn't be there in the morning when they woke up, but I was there to put them to bed and they were okay with it. Yes. And I used to get up and leave. Well, at one point, they they launched a direct flight from Amsterdam to Tampa, which meant I could take the nine o'clock flight from Newcastle. So I left the house at seven. And that one time, oh my God, the kids were distraught. You because know, they'd I, seen they you. Were, they, were, they sat on the step crying their eyes out because oh. I had to leave. And what did I do? I cried all the way to Newcastle. And then I just felt sorry for myself all day. And I spent all day looking at photos and videos in my phone, feeling like crap. Now, what I have to do is to prep a show in the US takes me about 10 hours. And instead of having to fit that into my day, what I do is I know that it's wasted time on the plane. Mm -hmm. I do that 10 hours of prep work when I'm traveling. Well, that day I didn't do it because I was feeling really sorry for myself. And then I was FaceTiming them when we got to the airport, Atlanta and all this and I got there that night at 7 o'clock at night, which was really 11 o'clock at night yeah. in my body clock time. And I'd been up since 6. Yeah. And I had to start a 10-hour show prep. Oh, and all it meant was oh. I didn't do a full show prep. I didn't do as good a job in my shows the next day, which meant I let the company down and I let myself down. And then I had to travel home knowing that I'd let the company down. And the whole thing, and I thought, and all of that, and was I a better mother for feeling like shit all day Sunday about leaving them kids? Not at all. Mm. But but I just let the mum guilt creep in all the Sunday and then the payoff was I'd been rubbish at work. And so after that, I vowed never to take that nine o'clock flight. And I went back to my other model. And what I do now is I get on that plane and I know I can't be with the kids, but I don't feel guilty about it because the kids are having a great time. They're with the grandparents, they're with Simon, they're having loads of fun, not not a problem. Mm. And when I get home, I know that I've worked bloody hard and I've done a great job for the company that week. So it's Thursday night, so I just won't go to work Friday. 
And I'll have, when the kids were younger, I'll take the day off. Yeah. And now I'll work a bit and I'll finish early to pick them up from school. And I won't do any work, even though I'm behind on my emails. I'll let that lag up and I'll have the weekend with the kids because I think, well, work's had 100% of me earlier this week. The kids can have 100% of me later. And I, and I just learned to be present because anytime you're not, you, you're not being a better version of yourself. Yeah. I wasn't a better mum for leaving them kids. I certainly wasn't better at work. Mm. Whereas if you just be present in the moment, you'll be great at what, because you're given what you're doing 100%. Sounds like you're quite tough on yourself, they'd say. You felt like you let the company down. I mean, I totally understand where you're coming from with it, but you must be quite, have a little bit of a... I probably hold myself to, I yeah. hold my staff to very high standards, but I think I hold myself to another level of standard again. And do you know what was interesting? Because when I did Strictly, I think that was what... It was holding myself to that level of accountability, more so than what Ali has shown me to. And again, I remember there being present. So I don't know what it was like for you, but for me, the only way I could fit the training into my day is I used to have to do it six o'clock on the morning. So I used to do six till 12. Okay. Well, poor Ali Ash, God love him. I don't think he knew there was two six o'clocks in a day before he met me. <laughs> so, so he had to travel up north and then he used to have to get up at five o'clock to travel to the studio where we would train and meet me at six o'clock to train. Wow. And I remember he, he said he couldn't get over how unbelievable I was between six and eight on the morning. He said your propensity to learn steps was just incredible. And I don't think it's that I have a better propensity to learn steps than anyone else. It's just your brain fires on so many more cylinders. There's that saying about an hour before nine o'clock on the morning is worth two hours after six on a night really? if you're working. And my brain fires on so many more cylinders on a morning. So I would do two hours, be absolutely brilliant, and then we'd always have a break at eight o'clock and have a cup of coffee. And um, I used to go and I used to check my emails. And then quarter past eight, we'd start dancing again. But in my head, I'm thinking, right, when I get to work at 12 o'clock, I need to speak to so-and-so about that shipping container that's delayed. And then we've got the proposal in for this. And so because they've just emailed me. so now, And my head is in what I'm going to do when I get to work, mm. not in the learning steps. Yeah. And I used to think that was all right. And it was two or three days and he said to me, you're brilliant between six and eight and something happens to you at eight o'clock. And I don't know what it is, but you're rubbish. And it takes you till about 10 o'clock to get back to where you were early in the day. And when I realised what it was, it's back to being present. Wow. I could only give him six hours a day. Other people that were training were doing 12, 14 hours a day training. I couldn't. I could do six. Yeah. So I should give him 100% of me in them six hours because that's all I can do. Because thinking about work at eight yeah. o'clock in the morning doesn't make me any better at work on the afternoon, yeah. but it makes me worse at the dancing. So it's back to that whole thing of just be present in what you do and you'll do a great job of whatever you're doing. And what else did you learn about yourself during the amazing and weird and <sighs> the weird incredibly and nervous world of Strictly? World of Strictly. So, well, funnily, I actually went into it thinking it was a dance competition. <laughs> <laughs> How many people make that mistake? <laughs> And I, and I remember that first week and we were doing a bloody cha-cha-cha. And it's, oh, so for tricky, me, oh, it was awful. Oh, I didn't mind the technical side of it. <laughs> it was hard, but I didn't mind that. It was the, it was the showing off. There was this oh, bit in the middle yeah. where I had to wave my arms and my hem and shake and do a bit of a shimmy. And it was so out of my comfort zone. But for me, in business, there's no room for that. You know, you don't wear your heart on the sleeve. There's no vulnerability. <laughs> right. You've just got to be serious and stern all the time. Certainly no showing off and wiggling your bum about. No, no, I just felt ridiculous. <laughs> and so I put all that focus that first week into learning the steps. How how could I throw my hip out in the New Yorker perfectly? And how could I, the lock steps had to be exactly like this. And I focused on the technique, the technique, the technique. And he spent the whole time trying to get me to loosen up a bit and let go. And I was like, well, 
that's not what they're judging me on. It's a dance competition. I've got to get the steps really good. And then we watched, they did the dress run. And I, I eyed everybody up and I thought, you know what? My aim going into it was to get to halfway. I eyed everyone up and I thought, about half of these people are a lot better than me. And there's about half of them, I can give them a decent run for their money. Not necessarily better than me, <laughs> I like but how not analytical worse. you are about that. And thing. I just weighed it all up. <laughs> and I thought, right, halfway is the equivalent of the win for me. Mm. You know, because I'm, I'm, I was never going to be a good enough dancer to win or to get far on, that far on. But the best I could succeed... Top success for me would be the halfway point. That's what I was aiming for. So I was like, right. And, and, and I watched a couple of others doing the cha-cha-cha and I thought, my lock steps are better than yours. I'm going to score better than you. I'm fine, right? And I danced fourth and I got 17 and I got a slate and I got a, I got a three from Craig, right? Oof. And I remember sitting down and Aliash kept saying to me, are you all right? And I was like, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. And I thought, you know, I'm bottom of the leaderboard, but it's only four people, you know, so I'll, I'll maybe end up in the middle way because that's where I am. And everybody danced... And everybody went just slightly above me and the leaderboard stretched and stretched and stretched and I stayed at the bottom. And I was right at the bottom and I just thought, oh, how's that gone so wrong? Because I'm, I'm not the worst dancer, so how am I at the bottom of the leaderboard? And I just didn't get it. And I remember we went we went out for, for a drink on the night afterwards and it was really cutting him up how, how I was just being like, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. And he looked at me and he says, it broke my heart to see you tonight because you're not fine. That's in business, that's what you do. You just say, I'm fine, it's fine, we're going to move on. Mm. And it was just, it was watching the show the next day back and I realised what it was. Everybody else had embraced that competition and totally left their heart on the dance floor and given it their all. And I had given it my all technically, but I hadn't given myself over to the process. And that's what people want to see at home. Yeah. They want to see that vulnerability. They want to see you go for it. And I hadn't been prepared to take the armour off and let them in. And I've dreamed of doing that show my whole life literally it was the number one thing on my bucket list I was so desperate to do it and I thought oh my god I was Bucky's favorite to go out and I was like I'm all my life I've waited for this moment and I'm going to be out week two because I wouldn't let me guard down and I because I, I, could, I couldn't bring myself to do it and I had a lot of deep soul searching that week and I remember thinking it was a lot easier the second week because we did a ballroom dance and you don't have to show off but I tried to leave my heart on there without feeling like I had to show off. And, and and I went from the bottom of the leaderboard to the top of the leaderboard the next week. And I, apparently it's the only time in Strictly History someone's doubled their scores in a week. And it was that elation, that feeling. And I was like, oh my God, I can do this, but I have to unlock this bit of me inside mm. that I wasn't prepared to let out. And I certainly wasn't prepared to let out on national TV in front of 10 million people. And I think that was the biggest eye-opening thing for me. Yeah, and I think that's quite a... Um, understandable um, instinct as well, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it is an extraordinary thing and it's totally different and new. I mean, I found, I still cite it as the most nerve wracking thing I've ever done. Oh, okay. Like by a long way. And everything for me is always, it's, the Paso Doble is always my mark of fear, <laughs> pu- public fear. <laughs> that was going to be my next week's dance. I never made it to the Paso. Uh, well, yeah, I just, I, I was just terrified of it, it, even though I never got there. Yeah, the ones that I thought were going to be, did you do a rumba? Yes. I quite like the rumba. I enjoyed my rumba, I must Brendan admit. freaked me out a bit because I was with Brendan Cole and he kept on saying, oh, it's like something you normally do horizontal, vertical. And I was like, that's terrifying. Yes. Like, really oh, creepy. So he did a great job of making you feel great about <laughs> yeah. it, didn't he? But then when it came to it, I was like, actually, no, it's quite nice. It's like the tricky dances, but slowed down. It's, like, it's, it's slowed down. And I liked it because it was back to the technical side. Exactly, yeah. And we did mine to my favourite song. So I felt the connection oh, with that? the song. Shania Twain, You're Still the One. Oh, a lovely I song. I love that. And we, we had to speed it up 13%. 
Oh, so I even bet. that was too slow for a rumba. Is that so, a song from your wedding or anything like that? Do you know, I, I wanted to have that as our first dance on our wedding and then I was too embarrassed too. I think, oh, I'll Aww. get upset and everything. So we had Aerosmith, don't want to miss a thing. <laughs> well, that's another good there idea. There you go, another builder. So your husband had to watch you dance the song that you wanted your first dance, but with another man on national there telly. <laughs> he doesn't dance my husband though, so he really didn't mind in the slightest. Oh, that's cool. And how did your boys find it? Were they... Do you know, they hated it before it started on TV because it was something that took me away from home. So it was strictly was a dirty word all the way through August when I had to go and do press interviews mm. and go and do the press days and everything like that. But then all of a sudden, I think it was the mix of everyone at school was talking about it and it was a little bit cool that their mummy was doing that. Mm. And then Aliash was just unbelievable. He, I think, I haven't been in the show in nine years, he cottoned on to the fact that the way to get her to do the absolute best she could is to get the whole family bought into this. Mm. And the very first night he was up with us, I remember it was my wedding anniversary, 15th of September, he came round for dinner that night and he brought football cards for the kids and he was down his hand and he played with the kids for a couple of hours. So the kids absolutely loved him. Mm. And then Simon was getting home from work and I remember one of the kids shouting, no, daddy's coming, daddy's coming. And he said to us, I don't suppose you want to go and like have a long shower or something. Basically, make yourself scarce. So... I went off and had a shower. And by the time I came back out of the shower, he's him and Simon sitting, watching the football, having a beer. So they've been best friends for years. I think he's, <laughs> he's obviously cottoned on that most men would find this whole process really intimidating. Mm. And your wife's going to be rubbing up with another bloke for, you know, 10 hours a day, six in my case. And um, and he's just thought, if I, if I can embrace that and, and yeah. become friends. And I can just remember, I think it was my week four, and um, I, t- I rang Simon as soon as I came, as soon as we came off, and I was like, "Oh my God!" I was top of the leaderboard again, week four, and I'd got thirty six. And he said, "Oh, Ali, I said you were going to get thirty six. And I said, "When did Ali tell you I was going to get thirty six? He said, "Oh, we were texting on Wednesday night." <laughs> And I was like, you, you text? And he's like, well, yeah. And, I, and then I realised that they had this little bromance going on, the two of them. And he, he just wheedled his way into my family. My dad, I remember my dad doing an interview with one of the, I think it was the Daily Mail. He called him the third son-in-law I never had. You know, he literally <laughs> he wheedled his way into my whole family. My mum, my, my dad, my sister, my little niece, the kids, Simon, they all idolised and still do to this day. They came on holiday with us twice last year. Really? They're just an extended part of the family. Oh, that's lovely. And I think he's he probably did that as a strategy yeah. from the off to... to get, that made me better dance because I, I wanted to do well for him because he was part of our family and I wanted to stay in longer because yeah. the family were all loving it as well. But, but actually, by the end of it, I think he was just... They call him Uncle Aliash now. He's just an extended part of the family. Yeah, and he's a nice man. And I also think, like you were talking about mentors who don't know their mentors, I think that probably Aliash, because he did his first year when I was on, actually. That yes. Was, yes. With them, um, and he won, actually, he won. with um, mm-hmm. Abby, uh, Abby Clancy. And um, Brendan, when we first got partnered, as soon as they stopped filming, the first thing he did was run straight over to Richard, my husband, and shake him by the hand and introduce yeah. himself. And he said, "Bring, involve everybody. Involve your family. Involve your mm-hmm. friends. I used to have my friends and come along to the rehearsal. I used to have my kids come along. Yep. Like, and he, I think they probably have learnt that that's a really Good wholesome and mm-hmm. positive thing to be doing. Because it is very intense. And... I don't know how you found that aspect. For me, my brain was just elsewhere for All the, the time. time I was doing it. Really, yeah. I'd be sat talking at home and then I'd suddenly drift off into space and I'd be like going over a little bit of dance move. Yeah. I couldn't blim and get right. And it was just, I've never really done anything quite that intense like that. I think intense is the word. Mm. And I, I learned to stop bringing it home as much. I was just talking about it 24-7. 
And I remember I caught myself, it was about a week in, and I'm there before, you know, we, we laid in bed watching the news or whatever before I got to sleep, and I'm twittering on about, oh, and I nailed this to Demi Danson. And then I just thought, oh, my God, like, Simon's not doing this. He's he's having to live it with me. Mm. At least spend my time with him asking how his day's been instead yeah. of just constantly talking about this thing that I'm doing that he's that not doesn't involved involve with. him. Exactly. And I think it, when I became a little bit more acutely aware of it... Mm. I, I caught myself a bit more, but you you just get lost in that world because it is it's it's not something you do. It becomes you, you're in this bubble. That's the best way to describe you're in that strictly yeah. bubble. Yeah, and yeah. also, I, 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 is it true that your business actually wasn't performing as you as forecast because of your involvement in strictly? The, the difficult thing for me is I wasn't doing as much TV mm. TV shopping when I was there, so the the rest of the business really had to step up to fill that void of me not doing as well. I still did quite a bit. You, would, I, I literally did a couple where I did through the night, I would broadcast to the States. And because of COVID, we, we set up a studio in the Northeast. Mm. So I used to do, and there was a couple of times I literally did over, I did all day dancing till, till 12, one o'clock, then all afternoon and evening till five o'clock in the morning on air. And then I'd have a couple of hours sleep and then go all the next day again. Oh, and I did that two hardcore. or three weeks in the dancing. And it, it, it's really difficult, but trying to find that balance because I knew that the company, I couldn't be out for that long and it not affect the company. You're so but I wanted to try and not... Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to try and not affect the company as much as I could. And did you realise before then quite how dependent everything is on your your presence in that way? Probably not as much. I yeah. think what I did, what I hadn't appreciated is the leadership presence that the company missed when I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. You know, and a few of the staff commented to me afterwards, they just say it's just not it's not the same. Yeah. And it's I I'd I'd only thought it was the commercial value I brought to the business. I hadn't really ever considered the leadership aspect of me not being in there, mm-hmm. and that that was that I think that was the biggest takeaway for me. So so I'm doing probably a lot more TV now than I did even before Strictly, um, but I'm trying to not do stuff where I'm missing as long, mm-hmm. so that I can still maintain that that presence in the business. Yeah, yeah. And are you the sort of person that makes like five year, ten year plans, or are you more kind of following your nose with things? Uh, so my my bucket list stuff was to do Strictly mm-hmm. and to write a book. Which well, to write is, not yeah. a biography, which I did last year. And, and I love the and title, wondered, by the way. Thank you. We can you. make it. We it's can clever. all make it. Yeah, it's clever because obviously you're talking about making <laughs> it as a businesswoman, but also craft. Yes. That was it. The love play, it. A little bit of a play on words. <laughs> I'm a big one for a pun. I love I love a play um, on words. Well, I'm pleased it, I'm pleased it resonated because <laughs> I think a lot of people won't have understood why I called it that. <laughs> I'll explain it to ev- each and every one of them. <laughs> but, but they were big bucket list things for me. So, and I feel like I achieved them a little bit sooner than what was in my life plan. Mm. So I didn't have a life plan beyond them. So now it's a case of, right, need a new BHAG. There's a good one for you. Big, hairy, audacious goal. That's what they call them in business. What's your BHAG? What's the big BHAG that we're working towards? So I need a new BHAG. Okay, and you're looking for something. We're on on the search for the big BHAG. Well, it's my camera in the middle of my computer for doing zooms looking people in the eye that that i'll make this afternoon (laughs) (laughs) so thank you so much for talking to me it's been a complete pleasure i thoroughly enjoyed it (laughs) i look forward to your investment in my invention (laughs) (laughs) i'm in (laughs) hey me again let's sound more relaxed now we've actually had our flight a bit delayed so i'm i'm in a shop I'm able to look around. I want to say sorry to Richard who's editing this. I know you hate the fact it's so noisy here, but I actually I found the quietest corner of boots that I can. 
to talk to you. Um, how much do you love Sarah Davis? Isn't she lovely? And it's just, I love spending time with women who are such cheerleaders for other people. And they sort of have that kind of can-do attitude and hard work and all the good stuff. So yes, that was a joy. And, and now actually I'm really starting to look forward to my weekend. I'm taking my mum away. It's just the two of us. We've got two nights away in beautiful Fife. We brought our walking boots. I think it's going to be really cool. And I'm so thrilled we made this flight because the next option, they only had business class left and it was like 500 pounds each. And my mum was like, we'll just have to do it. And I was thinking, I'm bloody well not. <laughs> um, anyway. That reality didn't have to happen. Listen, have an amazing week. Thank you for joining me again. Thanks to Richard for doing the editing on a noisy thing. Sorry, sorry. Thanks to Claire Jones for her amazing production and beautiful note making and all around fantasticness. Thanks to Ella May for the gorgeous artwork. But uh, mainly thank you to you for joining me, lending your ears and spending some time with me. And I'm sorry if I put you in a slightly stressy mood at the beginning with my frantic chat about getting to the airport. But you know what it's like when you think you're going to miss something. It's nothing quite like that bolt of adrenaline. It's going to last me all day. All right, that's the last season. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.